0: Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to the Mass. I'm here with David Dalt, who hosts the weekly radio show, Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith, and co-hosts the Francis Effect podcast with Father Daniel Harran and National Catholic Reporter Editor Heidi Schlumpf. He edits the Commonweal podcast, the Deacon's Pod for the Paulus Fathers, and produces podcasts for clients across the country through his company, Sandberg Media. He is also an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at Loyal University, Chicago, the father of two lovely children, a great husband, a great neighbor, and a great friend. <laughs> David, welcome to Messy Jesus Business.
1: I'm so glad to be with you, Sister Julia. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I have had the privilege of knowing you in person since last spring, and we both started to emerge from our little COVID shelters, (laughs) although I met you prior to that, and I think have been a follower of your work for a handful of years. I'm really grateful for all you do in the world and the ways that you show up and you amplify people's voices and you help people to have meaningful and important conversations. And you contribute to the collective conversations about religion and spirituality, about justice, about social consciousness. And I know you also as a person who's had a very interesting spiritual journey. I know pieces of that story. Yet I would like to hear you describe how have you come to know who you truly are, and how you are called to serve?
1: Wow, um, that is a huge question, and one that I would venture to say I don't yet have a full answer to. So I would, I would say I'm still becoming who I am called to be. Yes, uh, good answer. So <laughs> I, yeah, I was I was raised in a. In an, in an environment that didn't have any kind of really religious language at all. Mm. Uh, I was raised as an atheist for most of my young adult life, and I came to faith sort of gradually when I got to college. I finally met some Christians that didn't hit me over the head with the Bible and just tell me that I was going to hell, mm. but instead actually opened up the Bible and showed me the good news, not the bad news. And in the wake of that, I began to explore, and then in my mid-20s, I had what I would really call a kind of real definite moment of saying, okay, I'm going to be a Christian. And then in my late 20s, I went to seminary. And then, again, kind of in an exploratory fashion to try and figure things out. And then ended up being good at it and went to further graduate school and uh, ended up pastoring a church for a little while. And also now I teach people that are going to go on and be spiritual companions to others at Loyola University Chicago. So this has all been a very kind of growing edge for me. I will say, in addition to the kind people that opened up the Bible in my presence with an arenic spirit rather than a a kind of a hit-you-over-the-head spirit. I also was very blessed to encounter some communities along the way that taught me how to be more gentle and how to be a better companion. For 15 years, I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. Mm. And then my first teaching post, I taught at Christian Brothers University down in Memphis. And so I was deeply influenced by the charism of the Lasallians. And now I teach in a Jesuit context. And so I'm, I'm also influenced by the. The, the charism of the Jesuits, but also one of my best friends is a Franciscan priest. And so that charism as well has been very uh, influential on me. So I'm lucky that I'm able to move through kind of companionship with a lot of different religious communities. Mm. And I learn from all of them and I listen to all of them and they all help me with my discernment and my next steps. So I think mm. that's the beginning of an answer, but I'm, mm. I'm happy to go further if you have more questions that you want to ask.
0: Yeah, I'm there's a lot of things I'm curious about there. So you were a pastor for a while and you went to seminary. Which denomination was that?
1: Well, so I went to seminary as a Quaker. Mm. So I got a a release from my community. Quakers don't have formal ministers. Oh. And so at least the branch that I was a part of Long story short, I ended up kind of in the area where I was living at the time, east side of Atlanta. Uh, I was in a Quaker community there, kind of worshiping there, but also had occasion to be in touch with a Presbyterian church, PCUSA. Mm -hmm. I ended up starting out working with their youth group. I got uh, sort of permission and support from my Quaker community. So they came alongside me with what's called a clearness committee, and we did discernment about whether or not this was a genuine call to ministry. And then once we all discerned that, yes, in fact, the Spirit was calling me to work with this group of teens there at that particular church, then they supported me. And they wrote a we call it being a recorded minister. So they literally wrote a formal letter that I could then present to the church saying that my community of the Quakers was recognizing this call and that they were supporting my you know, exploration of ministry with them. We did the same thing when I went to seminary. I went and we discerned it with my Quaker community. They wrote me another letter, and that was what sort of released me to go and explore the ministry. And I remained a Quaker through half of my doctoral studies until I became Catholic. Mm. And without getting too technical, there is a loophole in the Presbyterian polity of the Presbyterian Church USA that you can have a kind of dual commitment. And so I was what's called a supply minister, which means I was going through the ordination process, but I hadn't been formally ordained. There were certain things in the church that I couldn't do. It was a rural church, and it was far away from where I was living at the time in Nashville, Tennessee, and they needed a pastor. And so I went down, and I preached every week, and I would visit folks in the hospital when they were sick. When they died, I would bury them, but I couldn't baptize them, and I couldn't marry them. So, I mean, there were things that I couldn't do. There were things that I could do, but I learned a lot from being in that community. It was very humbling and really eye-opening, and uh, it is a treasure memory for me, although, you know, now I'm in a very different trajectory of my life, but I'm glad that I had the experience of working with that church.
0: Yeah. What are some of the major things you learned during that time that still are part of you?
1: Well, w- the most important thing, uh, I think when I was in seminary and I took a course in homiletics about how to preach sermons, mm. uh, I think every student of homiletics really gets an idea that the sermon is supposed to be a big knock it out of the park kind of thing.
0: Mm. What I
1: learned showing up every week is... <laughs> Having to preach every week. This was where the wisdom of one of my homiletics professors, Chuck Campbell, was really good for me. He said, sometimes you got something to say and sometimes you just got to say something. (laughs) What I realized was that, you know, I couldn't knock it out of the park every week. And I I just didn't have the I didn't have the stuff in the tank to do that. And there wasn't Uh. time to do that what was really important was for me to show up. And it was often more my presence there than any of the ideas that I brought that was really important to that community. And, you know, mm. some sermons were good and some sermons were bad and, and some sermons, mm. most sermons were mediocre in between. Mm. But that that also helped me for a lot of other, That that's a good wisdom for life, right? Because you can mm. really over freight certain activities and think, ah, I've, I've got to really knock everything out of the park. When oftentimes it's much more important that You simply put in the work of showing up. And so that Uh I'd say that's the major lesson that I got from that. I also learned a lot because these people really trusted me by giving me glimpses into their personal lives. Mm. You know, outside of my family, I had never really had that kind of intimacy with other people before. It was really humbling to learn the struggles that they were all working with, and it was humbling also to realize how seriously they took my advice, and so I I learned to be very careful and to listen a lot more than I talked. Another Mm -hmm. thing that I learned was just the listening was the most important part of the ministry. Again, you can really get distracted into thinking that you're the hero of the story, either in the pulpit or when you're at the bedside with someone, and you're not. Jesus is the hero in both of those places. And that was a lesson that really got cemented for me during all of that time.
0: Mm. Oh, thanks so much for saying all that. And you know, I resonate with a lot of what you're saying because much of what I've been thinking about in my own work is related to humility and fidelity and the value of presence and not performance <laughs> and how the work of really being faithful to Jesus and living the gospel is like you're saying, it's about showing up. It's being present to people. It's about building the relationships, building the trust and It's never about us. (laughs) And in a way, we're having to push back against the way we've been formed. I don't know if this is the way you were formed, but I would say the way I was formed in school was sort of like make sure that if you're giving a presentation, if you're public speaking, it is the best performance ever. You should get the top rating for that, for the way you say your words and the way you inflect everything and, and you put your words together. But the reality is we're humans and we're messy and we're all half broken and falling apart when we're together. So like, why do we have to act like we're the Messiah when that, that work is already covered? <laughs>
1: Well, what's interesting for me, I mentioned that I had been part of the Religious Society of Friends for a significant portion of my life. And for listeners that are unfamiliar, I came from what's called the silent meeting tradition of Mm. the Religious Society of Friends, which means when I went to worship for more than a decade, when I would go to worship, my experience of worship was a group of about 300 people sitting in silence, and we would sit in silence for about an hour, and That would be the case unless someone felt a prompting of the spirit, in which Mm -hmm. case the expectation would be that they would go through a process of interior discernment. Is this a message for me or is this a message for the entire group? Is this a message that actually speaks to the condition of a spiritual moment or is this Something political or a rant or something. Hmm. I love the kind of discernment that finally, like, am I compelled to speak? And at that point, then you Mm. rise and then you say something. So I came from a tradition where we really thought a lot about the words that we use. And particularly about how the words are part of not just our individual experience, but our communal experience. I carry that forward into my teaching, and I also, when I was preaching, I carried that forward into my preaching. I really tried to be spirit-led rather than intellectually led. And I think that that's where I have a resonance with what you were just saying, because I think that it's I, I'm in a lot of professions where I'm supposed to talk and my voice is central, and I really think a lot about how I can be more quiet in those moments and how I can talk less in those moments and how when I am speaking, the words that I say are the ones that the spirit is prompting and not my ego or a kind of political need or an intellectual need. And I'm horrible at it. I mean, but it's the process that I try and utilize. And, you know, every day I practice it and every day I get a little better. And maybe when I'm old, I'll actually be good at it.
0: Yeah. You're describing a form of mindfulness or contemplation. How do you define contemplation?
1: Well, so a moment ago, you mentioned being a good listener. I'm going to take an odd path to answer that question, if you will indulge me. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, uh, I came from a very uh, difficult childhood. And a lot of the experience of being a child in my household was being a witness to events that were violent or horrible, and then having the urge to try and talk to someone about those events or to name them or to or to process them and then to be told by all the responsible adults around me that I hadn't actually seen what I had seen. And so my experience of a lot of kind of my life and my connection to my emotional life was one of disjuncture and fracture where i couldn't trust what my internal barometers were telling me and so a lot of my practice of listening and i credit my wife and also some other folks around me that really have taken on this practice with me we work very carefully in my immediate circle of of love both with my children and with my spouse that we try very, very hard to actually listen to what the person is saying, and then we practice, and it goes by a couple of different names, reflective listening, the Imago technique, and it's very, very dull, because what it basically <laughs> means is when, when someone talks about their interior life, my job is to listen very carefully and then to say back to them as verbatim as I can what they just said. My daughter uh-huh. says, I'm feeling anxious and upset at you, Papa, and I, my job is to say, so what I hear you saying sweetie is you're feeling anxious and upset at me is there more about that and she keeps talking she spins it out until she hears me having said back to her what her experience has been without my re-narrating it without my adding color to it without my making it seem like I'm better, but simply me accepting her words as clearly as I can and honoring them by letting them be in the state that she chooses. Yeah. So to me, this was a life-saving technique because mm. this created for me a way of reconnecting in my own broken interior life, a way of uh, of kind of understanding and trusting the reality that I was living and the emotions that I was having about that reality. I want to stress to listeners, this reconnection didn't happen until my late 30s and Mm. and really kind of got rolling in my late 40s and I'm now in my early 50s. But I'm in a much different place than I was when I was a child. But let me also say, Lo and behold, I start teaching at a Jesuit university, and I realize what I'm describing to you in some ways is reflected in the Jesuit practice of cura personalis, or caring for the whole person. And so the Spirit, once again, has brought me to a place where my own interior life and reconnection now can be wedded to my vocation, where I'm able to actually teach in a context where the kind of language that I just used in explaining this to you, I can also use with my students to say, and this is how you can be a good spiritual companion by not re-narrating somebody else's experience.
0: Wow. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it like fits so much with the work that I'm trying to do in my own spiritual life of just noticing, like I'm feeling sadness and and that sadness is real and not having to overthink it. It, it connects to in my w- work as a spiritual director, as a vocation minister, how basically I'm listening deeper. I'm trying to hold a mirror up to people to and help them to explore and to discover for themselves and validate what they're experiencing and knowing and learning a- along the way. So this is definitely... One of the ways we honor the dignity of other people and the sacredness of the human experience is by truly listening to the other and honoring them in their experience by how we hold space and offer them space. Absolutely. Now I'm curious about in light of this and and other things that I know about you, how in your imagination does it work? to create inclusive communities when there's such a variety of folks. I'm thinking especially about um, neurodivergence and the richness that that brings to communities and the ways that there's stigma about mental illnesses. There's all these sort of things that sometimes prevent people from being open and inclusive, even in communities of faith, to different ways of thinking and operating in our brains.
1: I mean, that's a huge question. I'm going to answer it in kind of two passes. The first pass is personal. So in addition to a kind of late life reconnection with my emotions, as I unearthed all of the stuff that had been piled over my interior life, that also was accompanied by a set of late life diagnoses. And so I carry some mental illness and neurodivergence myself and Coming to understand that about myself and how I am wired differently than those around me has also helped me to think about, and this this has all been in parallel with also recognizing that some of the members of my family also have neurodivergence, my mother who passed away in 2009 probably was on the spectrum. If we had understood that, then the relationships that she had, not just with me, but with others, I think could have been handled a lot better than they were. Some immediate members of my family are on the spectrum. I don't know if I'm on the spectrum, but I do have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I do carry a psychotic sort of uh, diagnosis and all of that is managed and all of that is stable. And I have a very good support system. But I also understand that when I get out of that support system and when I step outside that routine, my life is very different and my relationships are very different. And so this allows me to have a lot of empathy for those that maybe are not quite so well supported or maybe are not quite so firmly secure in their diagnoses yet. Now let's turn to the second part of my answer to your question. I work with a number of institutions, and one of the problems with institutions is that they are efficient. And they become efficient by basically regularizing the way that they deal with situations and with people, which means yeah. that if, if people are not slotted into kind of narrow definitions of what is acceptable within that given institution, they either disappear or there's some violence done against those people that don't fit. And so one of the blessings that I have currently as a professor at Loyola at the Institute of Pastoral Studies is that my colleagues and the administration there are very interested in having conversations about who's getting left out and how can we shift our institutional expectations to be one of hospitality rather than the kind of brutal institutionalism that just says you either fit or you're out of here.
0: Mm. No
1: institution is perfect. And I will say that you know we're not making perfect strides in that direction. But I have a lot of hope and I have seen several occasions where students that are on the margins in some way, we've been able to make accommodations for them in ways that I think are very beautiful and that we're trying to make central to the entirety of our practice as educators. But now let's also take a third stab and say, We need to admit that one of the major opponents to the Americans with Disabilities Act back when it was passed were the churches. And they were saying that for historical reasons and for financial reasons, it would be a burden on their religious practice if they had to alter their buildings or alter their practices to make accommodations for the differently abled or for those who are neurodivergent or for any number of non-standard bodies that fit in their spaces. Jesus was very, very good about making the vulnerable central. And Pope Francis has said that the people that we think of as the margins are really the center of our church and our church life. But our institutions are very good at flipping that and saying, no, only the pretty people are at the center. Only the people that we find acceptable and that make us comfortable are at the center. I'm a person that makes people very uncomfortable a lot of (laughs) times. and so i am glad that that jesus makes a place for me i mean that's that's kind of i guess that'll be my last statement on on that particular question is i'm glad that jesus makes a place for even me
0: yeah and he actually makes a place for each of us and we're yeah. called to imitate as you were saying all that you know what was going through my mind is the scene in the gospels and i mean you're a theologian you could help me remember which gospel it's in where jesus is preaching and then they're trying to bring the man to him who's on the stretcher, and they can't get through the crowds. And so his friends have this, you know, innovative idea of like, well, let's just bring him down through the roof. <laughs> and then he tra- comes in. And so, okay, there's a total disruption.
1: <laughs> yeah, Mark chapter right? two, the house gets deconstructed for the sake of the vulnerable. That's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. That's yeah. Imagine if that happened in our church institutions and our educational institutions. Imagine if we ripped the roof off to make accommodation for the vulnerable, and to get them close to whatever it is that we treat to be most precious in that moment, whether it's Jesus or the wisdom of education. Imagine if we ripped our institutions apart to make them able to get close. That would be fantastic. That would be the gospel. That would be the good news.
0: That would be the good and news. And Mary
1: agrees in the Magnificat, right? right. So when, when she says, you know, cast down the mighty and send the rich empty away, but fill the hungry with good things, that is what we're talking about. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so (laughs) we're not, (laughs) listeners, we're not talking heresy here. This is all biblical stuff. (laughs) straight from Mary and Jesus themselves. (laughs) So go to the Gospels, read the stories, and you'll find the formula for what to do. If I can just preach for a moment, have mercy on me. But like, if we could just do that, and then when we notice all these like, but what if, what if, what if, all the resistance and all the fears bubbling up in Inside of us and to go to the place of, but we've never done it that way, but we can't do it that way. Just know that that voice in you is likely not from God. (laughs) And our God is a God of inclusion. Okay. I'm sermon over. Have mercy on me. Okay. (laughs) David, uh, how did you end up being Catholic?
1: Well, I, so, mm, I mean, there's another long story. Um, (laughs) So I I'll give the abbreviated version. I had thought of myself as not religious at all, and then when oh. I realized that I was religious, i I was swimming in evangelicalism at the time, and so a lot of my initial understanding of what it meant to be Jesus-y was very narrow-minded and very conservative because I was in what I like to call the rust on the buckle of the Bible belt. I was in central Georgia. I grew up in south Georgia. I had gone to school in Tennessee. There was uh, a lot of real influence there of a kind of very conservative, almost fundamentalist way of thinking about things. When I went to seminary, and particularly when I sat in the theology classes. I had a rude awakening. There was a lot more diversity and a lot more careful, critical thought about the text of the Bible and what it meant than I had been exposed to up to that point. And so I began to... Kind of move in more critical directions. And as I became more critical, one of the things that fell apart for me over time was the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura. And that's a fancy technical term. And if your listeners are unfamiliar with it, it basically means, starting with Martin Luther and other Protestants, the notion that the Bible alone should be the source for the church and its authority, and that we shouldn't put that authority in an interpretation or something like a magisterium. As I looked critically at this idea of sola scriptura, of using the Bible, I very quickly happened upon a couple of problems. This came along with, as I was beginning to teach as a teaching assistant in various contexts in graduate school, I would ask a question of the students, you know, something that was confusing there in a Bible text. And they would just look down at the footnotes, and they'd answer the question from the footnotes. But then sometimes they would come to me with problems of their own because one person would have one version of the Bible, another person would have another version of the Bible, and their Bibles would disagree. Long story short, through my doctoral studies, I ended up writing a doctoral dissertation about the footnotes in Bibles and how they work. And the Mm. conclusion that I came to was that all of these editorial assertions and additions end up acting like a covert magisterium. So what Mm. happened with the Protestants was not that they had just thrown off the magisterium and now the Holy Spirit was helping them to read the Bible, but rather they had thrown off the magisterium and now the editors or their pastors had come in and acted like a kind of soft magisterium for them. They still weren't reading the Bible in the the way that they said that they were, they were still looking to external authorities to the Bible. Anyway, long story short, Sola Scriptura fell apart for me. Uh. And so I I sort of began to look around for a way to have connection to authority in the church that was not Bible-based in the way that the Protestants did. And that led me to basically apostolic succession. And at that point, I had the option of kind of going with the Orthodox or going with the Catholics and due again to some good influence and some spiritual spirit led moments of just good timing. It became clear to me as I discerned that that I was called to be Catholic. I have a complex relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, I will <laughs> say doesn't? that, and and it is it is a different relationship than when I became Catholic. I think now almost eighteen years ago, uh-huh. uh, but but it is still an important part of my life and a central part to my life.
0: Yeah, is it a central part of your identity?
1: Oh, I I mean, have you read my Twitter feed? I would say <laughs> yes. It is. Yeah i uh, i i take yeah. I take very seriously uh, my my role and my identity as a Catholic. Yes, I do. And and I will say also, one of the reasons why I left the Religious Society of Friends and became Catholic was because Mm -hmm. I found that I could be closer to Jesus and have a more dynamic and intimate relationship with Jesus in the Catholic context than I was able to finally in the Quaker context. That's no Mm -hmm. patch on the Quakers, and I love my time with them. And they still are a very important part of my journey. And I I mean, I think about what I learned with them and some of the things that the Quaker traditions are called testimonies. So the the testimony of honesty, the testimony of nonviolence, the testimony of simplicity, these are still very important aspects of how I think about my spiritual life. But I, I bring them in and I translate them into a Catholic context.
0: And so what is it about Catholicism that helps you to feel closer to Jesus?
1: Well, the Eucharist helps. um, But also the thing that I really, really like about Catholicism, and I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna sound uncharitable, and I don't mean it to sound uncharitable. So I, I ask for listeners to give me a little bit of flexibility here because I'm gonna explain what I mean. But as I looked and studied more closely the various types of Protestant theologies, and so I, you know, I've got a I've got two master's degrees in theology and a PhD in theology. I've looked at this stuff pretty closely. And in my estimation, the conclusion that I came to was. At the end of the day, a lot of the Protestant theologies that I was studying were largely justifications of why they weren't Catholic. So theological formation, theological identity in the Protestant arenas, and this is not an original thought to me. So G.K. Chesterton in, on the conversion to the Catholic faith kind of makes this observation as well. Various Protestant theologies take ideas that are organic in the Catholic Church and they make them kind of systematized and overemphasized in their various traditions. And so Mm -hmm. the idea of sovereignty becomes magnified in the Reformed tradition. The idea of the Spirit becomes magnified in the Quaker tradition. These are Chesterton's observations. For me, what I really liked about Catholicism was that it's not trying to be a systematic theology, it's not trying to be a system of checks and balances. I studied Calvin very very closely in most of my graduate studies. I love Calvin's system, but at the end of the day, I didn't want to have a systematic relationship to God. I wanted to have an organic and living relationship to God. And what I really love about Catholic theology is it's whole, it's complete, like an organism is complete, but Mm -hmm. it's not like a mechanized system. It's much more Mm -hmm. giving and forgiving. It's much more liquid and flexible. As much as we like to joke about how the traditionalists like to say it's rigid and you're either in or you're out, my experience of Catholicism is that it's a very living, very messy, very beautiful, organic thing. And that gets me excited every time that I begin to interact with it. I really like the fact that what would, from the outside, seem to be as cut and dried as canon law starts out early in one of its canons saying, you know, the role of canon law is really pastoral. It's not punitive. The the job here is really the salvation of souls, not the exclusion of persons. And I'm paraphrasing there, but I mean, that kind of speaks to what I mean. Like, you know, Calvin's system ultimately was trying to figure out who's in and who's out. And I think that the Catholic experience is much more, you know, we're all trying to help each other get to
0: Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, I really appreciate you describing it as messy. Thanks for validating (laughs) my brand. (laughs) Brand. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny that I said that. Anyway, the organicness of Catholicism requires that a person dives deep into it. Right. And you can't stay in the shallow sw- swimming pool, in my experience, at least. <laughs> like, you really have to encounter. People on the margins. You have to study Catholic social teaching. You have to embrace the works of mercy. You have to read the documents of the church. You have to understand why, what, how we are sacramental in the ways that we live out our faith, how we have an embodied spirituality that is, yes, informed by tradition, yes, is informed by scripture, yes, has authority in the magisterium. But ultimately, we recognize the dignity again of each person's experience and how God is at work in each person and we don't ever I don't think pretend to know everything that's true about God and we're always honoring just like slices and pieces of God right and recognizing that even in our faith and in our tradition Words are symbols too, and they're inadequate, and everything's actually just representing and is a failure. Like We can't actually talk well about the mystery and the love and the mercy and the goodness of God. And it's infinite and we are finite. So (laughs) yes, amen. Oh, friend, it's so fun. Okay, so I'd love to hear you in the time that, that we have remaining. Talk a little bit about what radical discipleship means to you.
1: How long do we have? Uh, So (laughs) so this is a live question with me and my students at the Institute of Pastoral Studies here at Loyola, Chicago, because we are not a seminary, right? The students that come through our program are not men that have been discerning their call to be priests and deacons in the Catholic Church. Rather, they are the people that the seminary says we don't want. And (laughs) so—
0: Or could we say— you're kind of a resistance to clericalism
1: i wouldn't necessarily say a resistance to clericalism but rather that we recognize that there are discerned calls to ministry Mm. that do not fit the very limited institutional vision of the catholic church at this moment so women Uh, trans persons those sorts of bodies uh LGBTQ persons generally are not bodies that the church has said that it wants to be part of its ministry these are people who are welcome in our program so radical discipleship here means first of all listening to and trusting that when someone says that they have a call that yeah. they're not they're not fibbing and trying, again, in the way that I described earlier, to to not try and re-narrate that call to them. Well, maybe your call to ministry, young woman or middle-aged woman or trans man or gay person, maybe your call to ministry is legitimate and not that I need to somehow massage it and say, well, it's not really a call. Or it starts with actually accepting that these people are are as much a part of the life of the church and as much a part of the kind of call of the Spirit as anyone else. And from there, we dive into two major texts, okay, at least oh. in my interactions with them. One is the text of the Bible, and we learn to read that and to read it carefully, but also... Uh, there's a a biblical scholar by the name of Love Lazarus Seacrest, and she says that we read the Bible in rhymes, and it rhymes internally. And so, for example, the Old Testament and the New Testament are going to have moments of stories where they resonate with one another, but it also rhymes with our contemporary experience. And so the Bible speaks to its time, but it also speaks to us today. It's not completely transparent, as you were just saying, but rather in a mystery, it does give us wisdom even for today. So we learn to listen deeply to that liberative wisdom of the Bible. But also because we're a Jesuit school, I'm also trying to encourage my students at every point to slow down and be in touch with the data from their bodies. That's the other Mm. text that I want them to really be paying attention to. And in the Jesuit tradition, the Ignatian tradition, the mechanism that we use for this is a daily prayer called the examine, where someone is looking for 15 minutes a day, looking at their past and prayerfully carrying The good into their future and learning to kind of let go of the negative, the positive spirit versus the negative spirit in general language. And so. That is learning to not just have an intellectual faith, but as you were saying a moment ago, a very embodied faith. So I think radical discipleship in part is, you mentioned all these different things that we need to do in order to be good Catholics, but I'm very aware that Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity completely eschew book learning, and in fact, they are forbidden from owning books. Their job is to look into the face of the poor and see the disturbing face of Jesus looking back at them in the poorest. To the poor like that's another way to do this but it Mm -hmm. means really being very honest about your own reactions i'm struck by a story that's told by the missionaries of charity where one woman was realizing that she was having real hesitation about working with some of the leprosy patients the hansen's disease patients And when Mother Teresa was alive, her observation was, well, maybe you do not yet deserve to work with these people. And what an interesting way to think about that, that it's not some failure in the poor, but it's a failure in myself to be able to fully be present for them. Well, if that's the case, then that takes me being in touch with myself. And maybe that's intellectually. Maybe that's getting in touch with this kind of body data that we're talking about. Maybe it's something else. But it it means being radically in touch and radically honest with both the things where I'm doing it right and the things where I'm doing it wrong and prayerfully giving up the things that I'm doing wrong to the spirit for correction. So radical discipleship, I think, is a very ongoing process. It's not a light switch that you flip, but rather it is. uh, Let me say that another way. I've got a A dear friend who one time said, I practice every day justice and patience and kindness so that when I'm old, I may be those things. And I think that Mm. that's kind of what we're talking about here. That's radical discipleship.
0: Mm. Thank you. What more would you like to say about the messiness of living the gospel?
1: Well, I mean, if you think that it's like gym class where everybody's going to jump the same height at the same time wearing the same clothes I've got bad news for you. Uh, Catholics are a church of 1.2 billion people, and we're going to do it differently. And once we start looking at documents like Nostra Aetate, the church is also telling us that it's not simply the Catholic church that has the full volume of truth, but we find other traditions as well that have some aspect of truth to share with us. And we must in humility be open to the possibility that we're going to learn from our Protestant brothers and sisters, from our Muslim brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Hindu brothers and sisters, God love us, yes. our Latter day Saints brothers and sisters, and even our yes. atheist brothers and sisters. And you, we can just go down the line. You know, I, I've learned more about being a Christian from observing and modeling my life on what my sick friends do than a lot of the Christians that I hang out with. And that to me mm. is a profound piece of wisdom that I am learning more how to be humble and to serve others from someone who doesn't share my faith tradition at all. And what I see a lot of times from my co-religionists is a lot of hate and a lot of easy dismissal. So Mm -hmm. I I think we are all trying to figure this out and that some people attempt to short-circuit that process by making things much more simple than they actually are and exclude anyone who refuses to abide by that simplicity. I like the mess, I like the fact that my Catholicism is different today than it was 18 years ago. I wish in some ways that the church would listen. I wish Mm -hmm. that the church would be responsive to the voice of the laity in a way that sometimes I see it is not. I wish Mm -hmm. that we could find ways for our experience of Catholicism to be reflective of the extraordinary variety of persons that God has chosen to gift us with in our communities. But we're not there yet but I'm still here and I'm still Catholic. So I'm still in the mess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amen. And thanks be to God. We're in it together. Oh, David, this has been so fun. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Where could our listeners learn more about you and your work and support you in the good things that you do for the world and the church?
1: I do have a website, daviddalt.com, and that's just my name, d-a-v-i-d-d-a-u-l-t.com. Uh, if you want to listen to me, please go to francisfxpod.com to hear the Francis Effect podcast or thingsnotseenradio.com to hear my weekly radio show. And you are always welcome to come and study with me at Loyola University, Chicago. That's luc.edu slash IPS.
0: <laughs> Thanks, David.
1: Thank you, Sister Julia. It is a joy and I pray for you and your work daily. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing.
0: Oh, thank you. Your support means the world to me. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, Please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers, and we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.